the unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. Thank you all for being here. It's um, always an honor to do a, a Dharma talk on uh, Master Jiu's ceremony day. You know, she personally, I know she gave so much to me, and and uh, I couldn't have had a better teacher. And she entrusted me with a lot as, as the years went on. So, um, as you know, in Buddhism, there are three treasures. Sometimes they're called the three gems. Sometimes they're called the three refuges. And as Buddhists, we take these refuges. The three refuges are Buddha, our great founder and teacher. Um, Dharma, the second of the three treasures, the teaching that has been handed down by the Buddhas and ancestors. And the Sangha, the community of lay and monastic followers of the Buddha Dharma. Master Jiu used to say that um, you have to take all three refuges. Uh, you know, sometimes we can do two, but one of them is a little shaky. <laughs> but she said, you have to, in time, take all three refuges. Um, you know, the Buddha died long ago, so in some ways we don't have to struggle with, with him as a live human being. We have, a, we have other live human beings to struggle with. Um, and, and, you know, teach us, obviously. Um, maybe it's easier to idealize the historical Buddha. Okay, the Dharma, the teaching of our religion is in books. Unfortunately, uh, live Dharma teaching. Still, in a way, the Dharma is, is not um, breathing down our back. It's, it's at a distance a little bit. And, and, of course, we need to take it in. The Sangha, the, the third of the, uh, the three treasures, is about people and interaction with people in the present. And sometimes this is not so easy of a refuge for us. People, this is going to be no <laughs> enlightening matter, but people sometimes have difficulties with people. Surprising. Um, we have differences of opinion. We have different ideas. We have different ways of doing things. We want to do them at different speeds. You know, it's just, it's just people. Um, actually, it's a strength rather than a wit, a strength rather than a weakness. All these things. Some people are a real challenge for us, as we are a real challenge for some people. Uh, we don't get along well. Um, uh, even in the sangha. You know, where, where we have this common uh, intention in our practice, sometimes it's hard to get along with each other. If we are patient, compassionate, and generous, in time we find the Sangha an essential and beneficial refuge. Uh, you know, the three refuges come as a teaching and practice from the Buddha himself. At the time of the Buddha to become a a follower of the Buddha, you would have, you would take the three refuges. So it's not something that was, you know, invented as recently. It goes back to the, the origin of our religion. 
Um, so today, I, I wanted to talk uh, maybe spe more specifically about uh, the Sangha treasure, and even more specifically, because we just finished our Exploring Monastic Life retreat, about the monastic Sangha. So the, the Sangha, the Buddhist Sangha, has always consisted of lay and monastic followers of the Buddha. This is how the Buddha set it up. I think, I think it was very wise and brilliant. Um, he purposely set up the Sangha so, in this way so that the laity and the monastics could support, help, and learn from each other. Because we do. Um, we, we need each other. We all have something to contribute and offer to each other. So on the first night of the Exploring Monastic Life Retreat, we talked about what brought us here. And, uh, a number of us said that we wanted to do something, we wanted to do something with our life. We wanted, um, we really wanted to get in there and, you know, and, and work on our life, better ourselves as human beings. And we all, also, a number of uh, said that uh, we wanted to be of service to truly benefit others. And, and you know, part of it is that uh, you can do that in the world, obviously, but you can do it in monastic life. Okay. So I wanted to read uh, here a little something from um, a Dharma talk by Anjan Amaro, who is a Theravadan, because he's actually the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England, and he was a disciple of the famous Thai forest teacher Anjan Cha. But I thought this little piece, I mean, it sounds very much like Reverend Master Jiyu to me, but okay. So in some of the Theravada countries, the tradition of forest monasticism still flourishes. This style of practice, going off and living in the countryside, finding solitude and meditating alone in the wilds, is often praised. Our teacher, Anjan Cha, practiced in this way for many years. But in the latter part of his life, after spending a long time traveling, meditating, and living alone, he integrated practice and teaching into the creation of a spiritual community. He had found that he could develop profound concentration and insight, and he experienced some interesting mind states when he went off into the hills alone. But then, when he would come back and stay with other monks, he could only cope for a while, a little while, actually. <laughs> he would begin to lose his temper and get upset, angry and annoyed about how incompetent and useless everybody else was. <laughs> Boy, he had it bad. Um, after a few years of this, he realized that he had some lessons to learn. And this is, I guess, quoting on John Shaw here. Well, it's easy for me to go and be alone and be the fierce ascetic off in the forest. What is difficult is to be with other people, to learn how to spend time with other people. So he began to put himself in that position more and more, and eventually he developed his monasteries in that style. This is, you know, the, the style is very, that he developed is very uh, much like the way Reverend Master Jiu trained us. We trained in community. Often his monasteries were criticized because the monks and nuns seemed to have so little time to meditate. They were always working. 
And people seem to have to spend so much time together, chanting together, meditating together. Many complain that this was an obstruction. He listened and understood the criticism, but was never intimidated by it. He saw that there were profound lessons and great richness in learning to live together with other people. Interesting. Um, so, as I said, I think Anjan Chah's style of training that he developed was like Reverend Master Jiu's approach, and she approached it right away. I mean, that's how, you know, day when when I uh, came to live here. She had us uh, be and train together, and, and also our um, we didn't have a meditation hall, we, we didn't have a Buddha hall, we didn't have a, we didn't have a kitchen. <laughs> We had all these little buildings all around the monastery and, and, you know, there'd be, sometimes in a room there would be six of us in bunk beds. It's, it's okay, you know. Um, we had, we, once we were, a bunch of us were living in what is the, the gift shop and there must have been six to eight of us living there. And one of the monks who was living there had been a um, paramedic. Um, so in the night he would hear sirens and he would, run, he would run out in the street because, you know, he was, that's, that was his training. And it just kind of triggered all that. But, you know, we got through it. Um, yeah, and, and also, as you know, we work a lot. People, some people say, oh, you work way too much. You know, meditating enough. Well, I'm glad we work a lot. You know, it's okay. Um, but Reverend Master Jiu uh, had us be and train together. As monks living in a community, we offer a service to each other. We do what we can to help keep the monastery running smoothly. So this is not a competitive process. We're, you know, efficiency, sometimes. We don't, we, don't, we don't seek to be inefficient, but we're not always efficient. You know, because sometimes you put a square peg in a round hole. Not always, but sometimes because someone needs to learn something or it will be helpful for someone to learn something. I mean, I, I was head cook at age 24. The only thing I had going for me is I had worked in a bakery and I liked to eat. <laughs> I, didn't really, you know, I didn't really know a lot about cooking. Um, all right. Um, so it's not a competitive process uh, where we vie for jobs and fame and prestige. Um, we're pretty anonymous, really, and that's just great. Um, this, the training that we do, it, it's, it's a, co a cooperative setting where we help each other. Okay? Um, remember Master used to say about training that it's about making other people a success. It's not you know, geared into you. Of course you want to be a success, but, but it's about making other people a success too. Um, skills are a nice bonus. I mean, if we have a plumber or electrician here, that's great. You know, we don't, we're lost. Um, but skills are not everything. Um, can, with, with skills can come ego. Doesn't have to, but can, it can come ego. Um, Daily training in the monastery is about harmony. Getting along with the people that surround you. 
Okay, because harmony is not about way out there. It's about right here, right now, with the people you're training. I think one of the important questions in pursuing monastic life is, can you get along with people on a daily basis? Um, there, in, in monastic training, there is no I'm going to take the afternoon off because I'm having a problem with someone. I mean, it doesn't work. We, we do have problems with each other because we're very different kinds of people uh, brought together by a common intention. Um, but, you, but you can't take the afternoon off. You, you have to work it out or get some help to work it out. Okay? And, you ha- and, and part of that is seeing... Um, the good intentions of other people, although sometimes come out, things come out backwards, what was the intention that the person had? So in, in our style of monastic training, we are around people all day long. Okay? 17 and a half acres. It's not small, but you know, for the amount of people living here, you're running into each other all day long. We meditate with people. We, we do our daily scriptures with all of us. We eat with each other. Uh, we have tea together. Um, we relax together, you know, sometimes. Uh, and if you're a young monk or a postulant, postulant or novice, you may be sleeping in the Buddha hall there. Okay? You who came for retreat got a bit of a taste of this. Um, so when we have uh, opposite sex in the Meditation hall, we put a screen down the middle. Women are on one side, men are on the other side. Uh, years ago, there was a monastic gathering of different Buddhist traditions here. And we, in showing people around, we showed them the meditation hall and, and explained about how people sleep in here. And one of the monks uh, from another tradition said, well, that's a real dukkha. Well, it isn't actually, you know. It's just because he he's, he wasn't used to it. Okay. Um, it's actually a place and time where we can learn compassion, respect, and gratitude for others. You know, sometimes people grind their teeth. Um, sometimes people flay, flail around in their sleep, have nightmares or whatever. You know, I mean, we all have things that happen, but, but I think the people who've had that experience have found it really valuable. Because it, for a monk, it makes you narrow down your possessions, your space, you know. Um, I came from a big family, so it wasn't until I was out of college that somebody, I heard somebody talking about, you know, their own space. I thought, what, what does that mean? I lived with three of my other brothers most of my life. You know, I don't know what your own space. So maybe I was lucky. Um, right. Yeah. In, in training, monastic training in particular, you're, you're thrown in uh, to the pool with a lot of different kinds of people. Um, people you may never have hung out with in the world. Maybe I don't know. Um, and you become friends. Okay, you become friends. Um, the 
the monastery is actually a living example, and I'll extend this to the, to the Sangha, the whole Sangha, is a living example of how different people can live in harmony. That's a real offering to our contentious world where people don't get along. <laughs> so, Rev. Master Gio often says that the monastic life is not an escape from the world and that a monastery is a place where we retreat to advance, that is, to deepen our training. Because, you know, sometimes we have to pull back slightly and immerse ourselves in something so we, we can get through things. She, all like, she also liked to draw on two analogies about monastic life, and that's the pressure cooker and the rock tumbler. Okay. She called life, monastic life a pressure cooker, now, I don't I don't know how much pressure cookers are used anymore, but but I used them as a, as I was when I cooked, and a pressure cooker allows you to cook food more quickly. Beans, you know, they take forever to boil until they're tender. Well, in a pressure cooker, it's, it's a matter of ten minutes. Um, so that can be a real help in cooking, um, in that dramatic reduction in time. You do have to be careful, though, in using a pressure cooker. With a pressure cooker, you are creating a potential little bomb. <laughs> and if you don't pay attention, you know, if you don't watch the dial till it gets to the correct pressure and maintain that pressure, it could blow up. Or if you're impatient and you're trying to bleed the pressure cooker when, when the time is up for your whatever you're cooking in there and you try to bleed it fast, you know, so you can get... It, it doesn't, that doesn't work. You have to bleed it slowly. I once, uh, in our old kitchen, tried to speed up the process and <laughs> there was still pressure in the pressure cooker. I actually got lifted off the ground by the lid. You know, I didn't hit the ceiling, but I was lifted off the ground. I thought, no, I'm not going to do that again. Okay. Um, so, uh, monastic life can speed up the process of training, and it can. It doesn't always, but it can. Um, it can give you a straighter course up the mountain, less obstacles, maybe I'd say, because you don't have the responsibilities of a family, a career, a mortgage, you know. You're living in community in, um, well, poverty. But we live quite well. We're supported and we, we live quite well. Uh, so, you know, <clears throat> the pressure cooker can s speed up the process, but for some people, it's not a good idea. That's, that's, that's just fine, you know, because it's, it's just a way of practice, and, and, and you will find other ways of practice. Um, the constant schedule, the fact that you're training around others most of the time, the intensity can make one feel under pressure. So a good teacher will, will help us relieve the pressure because they guide you, they, they help you. Okay? And we ourselves have, in the monastic light, have to learn uh, not to work ourselves up into the exploding point. Because it's hard to come down when you've worked yourself all the way up. You know, so you got, you got to have safety checks on the way up. So a couple things, relaxing in our meditation um, and in our everyday life really helps with the pressure. You know, if you, if you, if you notice yourself, Saldos, meditating, and you're really tense, 
I'd suggest work on relaxing a bit. Because it, it, meditation shouldn't be, you know, so intense that you're ready to explode. Or if somebody touches you, you scream. Um, developing a good sense of humor also helps us relieve the pressure. I mean, Reverend Master Ji had a great sense of humor. Just, it can get you through a lot of things. It just cut right through it. Um, so that's, that's a bit about the pressure cooker. The other analogy Reverend Master Ji would like to use was the rock tumbler. So there used to be someone in town who had a rock shop, and they had, a rock, had rock tumblers, and they took rocks that didn't look like much and put them in with other rocks that didn't look like much. You throw in some gritty sand or something, and you tumble, and you tumble for quite a while, and, and the rocks bump up against each other, and they smooth each other, and they actually polish each other. Okay? Um, so uh, they gave us a rock, t- a rock tumbler, and Rev. Master G loved it, because that whole idea of, you know, these rocks polishing each other and so she would use that analogy in teaching and say that um, you know we're all we're all these rocks that don't look like much but you throw them in the rock tumbler you put some grit in which is is the daily training the schedule the meditation all the things we do during the day um, the interacting with each other and we bump up against each other as the rocks in the rock tumbler and we actually smooth each other out. We benefit each other. If you put just one rock in a rock tumbler, it doesn't get polished. It'll just, you know, go around in a circle. So we all help polish each other. So living with other people is is a great act of patience, I think. Um, The Buddha said patience is the greatest Austerity. Ascetic practices may be hard and may bear some fruit, but they are not the greatest austerity. It's patience. Okay? Patience allows us to be still so that we just don't jump to conclusions. Patience allows us to see things as they are. It gives us insight into what's going on. In monastic life, we also need to continue to develop compassion, kindness, sympathy, generosity. You know, there are others. Um, We have to be bigger than ourselves. Um, And actually, we're trying to let go of ourselves, so that helps in the process of being bigger than ourselves. Uh, And constantly work on not being selfish. This is fundamental for everybody if we want to get along. Okay. So Ananda uh, once said, asked the Buddha about friendship in the holy life. I'm going to read again from John Amaro because I think he puts it well and succinctly. Okay. I took the wrong paper out. Okay. So... Um, There is very often quoted, uh, often quoted saying in the scriptures on spiritual friendship. One day, Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, okay, 
uh, his closest disciple, came up to the Buddha and said, Lord, I think that half of the holy life is spiritual friendship, association with the lovely. And the Buddha replied, that's not so. Say not so, Ananda. It's not half of the holy life. It is the whole of the holy life. The entire holy life is friendship, association with the lovely. So Andre Amro says here, now the Pali word for friendship with the lovely, Kalayana Mita, I'm pronouncing that right. Kalayana means lovely or beautiful and Mita means friend. So it is often translation, translated as association or affiliation with the lovely. And the lovely has, it's a capital L, okay? Um, and it's the epithet, am I saying that correctly? For ultimate, the lovely is the epithet for ultimate reality or the unconditioned. It's what the Buddha meant when he said, there is an undying, unborn, unmade something. Okay. So, Anjana Amaro continues, it is interesting for the years I always used to quote it as spiritual life is the whole of the holy life. But the Buddha was making a play on words. He was also saying that is not just having spiritual friends, that is the whole of the holy life, but our affiliation, our intimacy with the lovely, with the ultimate truth. So that's our own individual association with um, the lovely, the, the ultimate, the unconditioned, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Um, He's also saying that it is not just having spiritual friends that is the whole of the holy life, but our affiliation, our intimacy with the lovely, with the ultimate truth. These two support each other. Our like-minded companions and associates in the spiritual life support our effort, but it is actually our ability to awaken to that which is truly lovely, to the wonderful, to ultimate reality that is in its own way the very fire of our spiritual life. So spiritual friends are obviously not just for monks. People in the world have them. People who have a religious practice have them. Maybe a student-teacher relationship or a good sangha friend. People who have a relationship with someone uh, can be good spiritual friends. You know, a couple can be good spiritual friends with each other. Um, Old friends uh, can maintain a spiritual friendship throughout the years. In spiritual friendships, we, are, we relate to each other with a sense of wholeness as opposed to separateness. There is a sense of unselfishness and openness between the people. Attachment and neediness are let go of. Okay, we're not trying to get anything from the other person. They're just our friends. And, fr and friends help each other. Sometimes good friends tell us we shouldn't be doing something. <laughs> they, they give us that courtesy. Um, I wanted to thank uh, you for coming to this Exploring Monastic Life Retreat. You know, it wasn't a huge amount of people, but you're, but you're great people. Thank you for coming. 
it's encouraging that people want to come and have a look at how monks live and train. Uh, so if, if I make it to um, next February, and I, I have all, in, all the tension of making that, but you know we know life is fragile and impermanent. So it'll be uh, 50 years as a monk, the best thing I ever did in my life, best decision. Uh, it hasn't always been easy. In time, you realize that you yourself make most of it, if not all of it. Uh, you make, yeah, make your make most, if not all, of the difficulties. I wish I had caught on uh, to some things earlier on. Regardless, the journey has been great. Never boring. When people say life is boring, I say, "Where are you living? What are you doing?" <laughs> but it's never been boring. Deeply challenging and fulfilling at the same time. And the journey continues to our last breath and maybe beyond. So, you know, I feel I have wonderful spiritual friends. I have friendship with the lovely, the unborn, the uncreated, the unconditioned. And that's what I found. So if... um, Monastic life interests you, come and see for yourself. A book or YouTube will only get you so far. Okay? Um, and you know how it is if we don't take a look, well, then pretty soon it's five years later, ten years later. <laughs> and, you know, we've got responsibilities and maybe a family. You've you, you got to be there then. <laughs> but if, if, it's, if it's something that interests you, I really... I'm not ashamed of saying, please come and have a look. Um, There are lots of good people in the world and lots of good things in the world. Monastics are not better than other people. It's a choice and a vocation. Some of us do not find fulfillment in the world. It's just how it is for some of us. Um, Monastic life has been around as an alternative for a long time in Buddhism. Since the time of the Buddha, there's been monastic life. And and the Sangha of lay and monastics working together. I just want to end with a little bit on this. So the word monk comes from a Greek word which means one who lives alone. I was actually told this by a Catholic priest um, Maybe it's a Cistercian who visited us years ago. He's a novice master at this monastery, but but he was interested in why you know we called both male and female monks monks. You know, we didn't use the term nun, but but in actual fact, um, monk means one who lives alone. It has no reference to what sex you are. So it works uh, both for the male and female, and that's why Reverend Master called us all monks. You know, I talked a lot about how in monastic practice we do a lot of things together. But the aloneness is still there. We individually are the owners of our karma. We individually make our own decisions. You know, whether you lead or follow, that's your decision. You're, you're fully responsible for it. Um, 
in monastic life, as in lay training, each one has to do our each of us has to do our own training. Um, and yeah, there there are, and there are times when you train. I mean, it's, again, I talked a lot about all the training together, but the times you go on private retreat. When you're meditating, you know, when you're going throughout the day, you're in your own body and mind. You're not in somebody else's. So you're alone. Um, And, you know, uh, in monastic life, there's a lot of instruction, but you learn most from observing. And you have to do that yourself. No one can observe for you. So, I'll say this again, in monastic life, as in lay training, each one of us has to do our own training. If we do that, all the Buddhas and all the Sanghas in all the worlds will be our friends and guides. Thank you. <laughs>